Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask for just incredible insight into your word and into the ways of your spirit that we'd be sensitive to him speaking to us that as he seeks to guide us that we'd be willingly submissive to him and father we pray that you would help us to die to the things of the world to the things of the flesh and help us to resist the temptations of the enemy seems to take so many lord and strew them by the wayside we ask that you would not only fill us full of insight, but wisdom, and most of all, love. For this is the fruit of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off with John the Baptist going through verses 1 through 6 in Matthew chapter 3, and I talked about what made John great, and then I gave examples of what makes somebody great here on this planet, whether it's wealth or position or notoriety or how many hits you get on Facebook or Instagram. That's what makes somebody great. But John the Baptist was great, as I pointed out, because first he had a miraculous birth. His birth was prophesied. An angel showed up and actually announced that it would take place. And he was a man that prophesied the coming Messiah. He was the forerunner to Jesus, and he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In Matthew chapter 17, which we'll eventually get to, Jesus said, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And of course, this is prophesied in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 but we don't want to take away as I pointed out last time that Elijah I believe the actual prophet Elijah will show up before the great and terrible day of the Lord brings itself to a culmination or brings itself to fruition and so he is going to be I believe one of the two prophets the other one is probably Moses and they'll be able to call down fire from heaven and, and put as many plagues on the people as they wish during that tribulation period. And we'll get into that in depth in Matthew chapter 21, or excuse me, 24 and 25 when we get there. Also, the thing that made John great is he brought this message, and it's a message that was in the Old Testament as well, but it was with a renewed vigor that he was bringing it because the Messiah was coming, and it was a message of repentance. As I pointed out last week, repentance is a change of heart, it's a change of mind, and it's a change of action. If we claim to be followers of Christ, if we claim to be disciples of Jesus, we had, have made an endeavor to change our heart, to change our mind, and to change our action. Now, Scripture talks about this change of heart. The change of heart entails us looking at ourselves and being able to come to grips with our sinfulness. Uh, there was a preacher at one time, at least a decade ago, and he came up with this phrase, and he'd go speaking around the country, and he would have, uh, there'd be usually a group of young kids or high schoolers, he would have them recite, I am somebody. And when the kids would say, I am somebody, he was trying to instill in them a sense of self-worth. When we read the scripture, the scripture tells us we are worthless. We are worthless in our current state. Our current state is one of sinfulness. 
and we deserve judgment and death. So when a preacher comes out and he tells people to say, I am somebody, we are nothing in the eyes of God unless we belong to his son, Jesus Christ, unless we have submitted to him. And that will bring about a godly sorrow. There must be a time in all of our lives where we turn to God and we are sorrowful for our sins, where we actually will weep or cry because of our sin. If you haven't come to that particular point, you need to ask God to do that work in you where you can get before him and you can say, God, I, I am just a rotten sinner and ask him to reveal your sin to you that is contrary to the word of God and his spirit will move in you. And God says, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. And it's better to go up to the house of the morning than to the house of feasting. And so God desires that our hearts are broken before him but in such a way where he can come in and administer his grace and mercy. He acknowledges our confession, and he says, but I will have mercy on you. I will not judge you according to your sin, all because each one of us, at least at one time or another, have gone before God and said, I'm a sinner. And he says, I know, here's my mercy. And that's how God operates. But the person who says, I'm, I'm just fine. I'm good, you're good. You're fine, I'm fine. It's not true. It is a lie from the pit. This idea of self-esteem that was going around in the 80s, it's a terrible movement because it takes us away from God and it puts the focus on the self. And so God requires, he actually says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly sorrows brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow enables us to say, I am sorry. It enables us to say, will you forgive me? And you don't have any regret when you're all done. You don't say, I was so stupid of me to do that. You'll never say that if you go before God and say, please forgive me. But the worldly sorrow, the worldly sorrow is one, I got caught. Uh, Somebody saw what I did and now... Oh, and they start weeping because maybe they're going to lose their position, uh, their fame, their fortune. Can you say Harvey Weinstein? You know, that guy has lost everything because of his behavior, and I'm sure he has the worldly sorrow. I would pray for him to have the godly sorrow. Now, not that he is a worse sinner than any one of us. You know, we have a tendency to point at someone like him and say, look how bad he was. And all we're doing when we point the finger, remember, three fingers are pointing back at you, right? So you're three times as guilty when you point a finger at somebody because that's the hypocrisy that God talks about, that we would go out and we would say something to the equivalent, I'm a godly person, I follow Jesus Christ, I believe in his word, I know the Ten Commandments, and I go to church, and I tithe, and, and I give all that. But the heart on the inside is desperately wicked. If you don't think it's wicked, go stand in a DMV line. It, if you don't think it's wicked, get in an automobile jam that lasts for 80 minutes, you know, and you only go a half a mile. 
And, and that's where we start getting tested. And then someone wants to cut in front of you. You know, do you, do you let somebody just come in? You can see somebody coming up the side and you go, no, I'm not going to let them in. And you pull up to the car in front of you and you just get this thing in your heart. I'm not going to be given. This is my spot. It's my road. I pay my taxes. And so we, we have this wickedness in ourselves and God judges that just as much as he would judge some sexual immorality. And matter of fact, some of the sins that are listed in scripture, if you ever read, um, C.S. Lewis, he has a book, Mere Christianity. He puts some of those sins really low and the higher sins are greed. Like greed is at the top and neglect of the poor. Those types of things God looks at and he said, that is even more wicked. You know, so we, we want to make sure that we are not judging somebody else and not judging ourselves first. That enables us to look at them with a proper perspective that they need repentance just like everyone else needs repentance. So that is the change of heart. This godly sorrow leads us to repentance, which leads to salvation. And we all must experience that at some point. Then there is the change of mind. In Romans chapter 12 and in verse 2, it says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when it comes to the way that we think, the news is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. Uh, I recently got a watch. I get it on my watch. I mean, it's just constantly telling me, what is out there? Then if I'm sitting too long, it says, get up and move, you know, something like that. But it, it's giving me the news every single day, and then I can get it on the phone, I can get it on the computer, I can get it on the uh, radio, I can listen to the radio. I, I am just inundated with the news of the world every day. And some of the information that comes from the worldly perspective is completely wrong. It is antithetical, uh, technical word there. It is against what God would teach us. And so when you listen to somebody who is on a news broadcast or an editorial broadcast and they are giving you what they think is right. It's the right thing to do. Well, is it the right thing to do? And we judge it according to scripture, but the world says it's just not fair. So where's it written? And you've heard it. Life's not fair. Get over it. It it is not fair. You see a person who has lived their life for God all of their life, and they suffer miserably in some a God-forsaken country where the people are starving. And they are just mistreated, maltreated, persecuted, and killed, and they just love God. That's, that's all their life is about. And yet you come to a place like ours, uh, United States, where we have tremendous prosperity, and God, I believe, established our country we have fallen far from the tree. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, we've fallen pretty far from the tree where we are today. And that's not to indict the whole country. That's us personally. You know, where are we? Are we right under the tree? Are we uh, reaping the fruit of God from his living tree, so to speak? Or are we rolling far away from the tree? Are we paying attention to the wisdom of the world? And many times... We don't have the ability to discern what God's will is as opposed to what seems right in the world. 
Scripture even tells us there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end thereof is destruction. And so we may think, well, this is the right thing to do. And God says, no, 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 that's not the right thing to do. It may appear that way to us, but God says, don't do it that way. This last week, I've, I've been going the, through the audio Bible, and I've gone through Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. I'm in Ruth right now. And going through Deuteronomy, God was constantly telling the people, I mean, over and over and over, do not go astray. Do not get idols. And then when Joshua comes along, Joshua keeps reprimanding the people. You have turned to idols. What are you doing? And there's the sin of Achan. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. They just refuse to listen. You get into judges, and there will be 40 years of peace. And then a judge has brought that in. And then they worship idols. And then they need another judge because for 20 years they're under this hardship. And then Gideon is raised up. And then Barak is, um, not Barak, um, Deborah is raised up. All these different uh, prophets are raised up, all because the people, they fall into sin, and then they wonder, God, why is this happening to us? It's because they fell into sin. They thought it was the right thing to do, over and over and over. I mean, if you listen to it in a setting, if you go through those history books in the Old Testament, you look at that and you go, what? how did they get it so wrong so many times? Remember? How did they get it wrong so many times? You look back at yourself, how did I get it wrong so many times? It's because we're not looking at the scripture. Our mind hasn't been transformed. Like, for instance, I'll bet there's somebody in here who believes in reincarnation. And you go, no. Yes. I'll bet there's somebody in here who believes we may become angels like Clarence. It's a wonderful life. We don't become angels like Clarence. There's, there's people in the United States that believe we're not going to heaven. We're going to repopulate the earth. You know, and it seems right, but it's not. Scripture tells us differently. So we have to have this change of heart. We have to have this change of mind. And the only way you can get a change of mind is through an IV of God's word, where it's just dripping in all the time. And if you don't have that, if it's not going into your mind, have, have you guys ever had an IV where they give you something really nice like Demerol and Valium? If you haven't had that, and I don't want to encourage you to go seek it if you don't need it, but if you've never had that, you know, I had a back problem and they gave me two Demerol and one Valium. And it was heaven. I mean, I just, the world is great. It's wonderful. I don't have a back problem at all. You know, it, it was just this sense of being lured in there. And we want to make sure we're not lured by the ways and the things of the world. So our mind has to be stayed on God. And once our heart changes and our mind changes, it should change our action. If it doesn't change our action, repentance has not come to us. The action will cause us to change. Now, does it mean perfection? No. Even Paul said, the things I want to do are not the things I do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Because his body, it seems like his body would make him do that. And what did he say about his body? I buffet my body. I talked to you about this last time we were together. And, and so the action, we are required to subdue our body and do what God commands says those that belong to him in 1 John, it talks about those who love God, keep his commands. Now again, we're not going to be perfect on that. And when we're not perfect, we go back 
to the first one. A broken and contrite heart I will not despise. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so when we get it wrong, that's the first place we go. First John 1 John 1.9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins to him. And so that's the cycle we go through. And when will that cycle end? When we die. When we die, we'll just be thankful to God for all of eternity. We will never have to say again, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Because we're not going to sin in any way, shape, or form. And to think about that for a minute. Wow, live a day and not sin. We're going to get up there. We're going to look at each other. You haven't sinned today. And not have, you haven't either. You know, we're, we're going to go back and forth. This is fantastic. In existence where there's no sin, there's no pain. Speaking of pain, I noticed as I get older and I wake up in the morning, if I go to stretch, I have to do it slowly to make sure I don't pull a muscle. You know, it's... It, it's like, oh, you have to ease into it where when you were young, you just stretch. Oh, yeah, ready for and this pain. This life is just full of pain. And I know it's just going to get worse, right? And we'll have no pain and no sorrow when we get to heaven. No more crying. No more animosity. No more fits of rage. Nobody's going to cut you off in the freeway because you'll probably fly where you're going. I don't know how God's going to do it. But our actions ultimately will change here on earth. And so all the things that you have been doing prior to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ will completely change into the, and you'll walk in the newness of life that God has called us to. Now what does that walk look like? And we're going to want to define that a little bit. But the first thing that we can go to according to the scriptures that are here. Now I left off in verse 6. And we'll probably get through verse 7, maybe verse 8 today. We might get that far. But the thing that John did, what, what did John do? Baptize people. That's what this is. Going down like that. He baptized people, right? It wasn't aerobics or anything like that. He, he took them and he baptized them. So this idea of baptism, is it the same baptism... As we receive. Well, it's related, but it's not. Uh, matter of fact, if you went to Acts chapter 19 and you see Paul there and he shows up to these believers and they receive the baptism of John, but they had not received the baptism according to Jesus' plan of salvation. And so they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then they received water baptism after that. So the baptism is a little different. And this baptism that John is dishing out, he's asking people to prepare themselves for the coming of the kingdom of God. Now remember, he is the herald for the Messiah. And it was confirmed to him that Jesus was the Messiah when he got baptized because the Holy Spirit landed on him like a dove and the Father actually spoke from heaven. So this baptism of repentance, it was a symbolic representation of changing one's mind and going in a new direction. For us, it's being buried with Christ. Romans chapter 3, I think it's in our chapter 6 and about verse 3, it says when we are baptized, we are baptized into Jesus' death. And so it symbolizes us going into the grave and coming out of the grave and being renewed, so to speak. Now, this type of renewal, if you get baptized, it doesn't save you. It doesn't even put you in the ballpark of salvation if you get baptized. I am confident there are going to be people who got baptized that will never make it into heaven. It's because on the inside, nothing has changed. 
But on the outside, they had these works. Lord, Lord, and we'll get to it, the separation of the sheep and the goats. We're going to talk about that when we, we get there in the Gospel of Matthew. But this idea of baptism, it doesn't save you. In First Peter chapter 3, in about verse 21, uh, right before that in 20, it talks about Noah and how Noah, in, back in verse 19 too, it talks about Noah, how they went through the flood and how they were baptized in that, so to speak. It's a figurative baptism. And he goes on to say, Peter goes on to say that this baptism now symbolizes the baptism that saves you. And then he gives a qualifier. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body. Now, if you're speaking English in our modern day, you would want to say something like, not dipping yourself in water to take off dirt. That's what he actually means there. So it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God. That's the baptism that saves us. In other words, when we go to God and we have this godly sorrow, we have this change of mind, this repentance that leads to salvation, once we have experienced that, we are pledging to God that we want to follow him and that we want him to be our Lord and Savior. So that's the pledge that saves us. It's not the actual baptism. It's not efficacious in any way. God is not going to look at us and say, because you got baptized, I need to let you into heaven. No, it's not going to work that way. We want to make sure, though, that as obedient disciples, we say, okay, I'm getting baptized. Now, I've been baptized twice because I needed it twice. No, I didn't need it twice. I got baptized twice. Once here in uh, the ocean or Mission Bay, and then another time I went to the Jordan River. Yeah, I wanted to be baptized in the river Jesus was baptized in, and so I okay, I'm gonna bet I'm gonna get baptized, and it's fine if you want to get baptized again, you can get baptized again if you go to Israel. It's okay, they give you a white robe, they walk you down this section, you go into freezing cold water if it's in the winter, and in the summer it's not too bad. But you know, it's a it's a nice spiritual experience to do that. And and so we go through that as believers. It's part of our act of obedience. This is the thing with repentance. If you have a change of heart, you have a change of mind, you're going to have a change of action. The action says, get baptized. If you don't get baptized, have you had the change of action? Well, you might say, well, 80% of the time, what does God want? He wants 100% of the time. And so we want to make sure we're obedient in that area. And the way that John did it, there was plenty of water, it was complete immersion. Uh, He would take people and dunk them all the way under. We usually hold them under until there's about three bubbles, and then we let them come up. (laughs) Just kidding. We don't do that. But I am not opposed to pouring or sprinkling. That doesn't make a difference to me, especially if, if somebody can get fully immersed. You know, when they use this term baptizo, maybe you've heard about it before. That's the act of taking a cucumber and putting it in the brine solution and the dill solution and it becomes a pickle right Uh, well it that's the idea the word that is used it's completely immersed if somebody can't be immersed and we've done that before where somebody had a a a fatal uh, incision uh, they had tried to remove a problem inside and they couldn't go in the water all the way and so we took them there was a public pool and uh, we hung their head over the edge and poured water over their head and they died couple of weeks later i don't have a problem with that and if we say well you have to do it this way we're baptist after all you know 
okay, we'll do it whatever way we can, but we can get lost in the details, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So this idea, baptism does not save. Let me read to you First Peter chapter 3, verse 20. And again, this is coming on the heels of Noah and the flood. It says, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This phrase, the kingdom of heaven, for some it's a nebulous idea, a a nebula galaxy, it has stars, but there's no definition. It's kind of like a cloud. It's like you're in the midst of fog, something like that, and you have no definition. You can't see anything which is out there. But scripture is pretty clear about this idea, the kingdom of heaven. It's mentioned over 30 times here in the gospel of Matthew. And if you look at the gospel of Matthew systematically, and one person wrote it like this. There's a manifesto of the kingdom of God. A manifesto is what you do. This, this is what you do if you're a believer. Then there's the mysteries of the kingdom of God in chapter 13, and it deals with the parables of the kingdom of heaven. And then there's a the future culmination of the kingdom of God, which deals with Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And, and you can go over to Luke 21 and, and, and back over to Mark as well. And it talks about that. So you have the manifesto, you have the mysteries, and you have the culmination of the kingdom of God. And the manifesto, when we start getting into that, I mean, Matthew chapter 5, and is it, blessed are those who mourn, you know, blessed are the poor. It, it goes through the Beatitudes that are in there. And if you take that in conjunction with Luke chapter 6, it just kind of opens up your eyes. This is how we're supposed to be. And in Luke, he gives the contrary or the comparison and contrast. He gives that in Luke, not so much in Matthew. And we'll compare the two as we're going through that. But it's just incredible what God gives us. This is what we're supposed to be like. And this is what we're supposed to avoid as far as our attitude and our practices are concerned. And then we certainly want to know what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes. I mean, the actual kingdom, we're, we're looking for a place. Well, it's Jesus Christ. Don't you know that the kingdom of God is in your midst? It was Jesus that was in the midst. Jesus is the kingdom. If you're looking for a building, well, there's going to be a city that comes down, but you're not going to worship the city, even though it's going to be a glorious city. I mean, it's going to be palatial to say the least this thing is huge and it's ordained and there's light going everywhere and people are happy and they're singing and angels are flying around everywhere and there's food all the food you could eat you know and you're not going to overeat and you're never going to get fat you're never going to die you don't have to eat i mean all these things are just going to be so great that are going to be up there and so we want to know well what's that going to be like am i going to enjoy it up there am i going to get bored really am i going no forever You're never going to get bored up there. You might get bored in your job here. You might get bored in whatever you're doing here, but you will never be bored in heaven. God's knowledge is infinite. His power is infinite. And we're going to see that on display forever. It's not going to end. I can't even get my mind around how long forever is. Forever is like a long time. And we don't even have words to describe how far out it is. And we're going to spend that with Christ, at least those who know him and those who have submitted to him.
So, when was the kingdom of the world not the kingdom of our Lord? Now, didn't God create everything? And when he created it, he said it was good, right? And it belonged to the Lord. Well, is this not now the kingdom of the devil? Well, he says he's the prince and power of the air. He's the one that kind of rules over everything here. And God came to redeem us out of that. And it is so corrupt, God's going to destroy this world. Not only this world, but he's going to destroy the entire universe. It's just going to be destroyed. And we'll get into that when we get to Matthew 24. But he's going to wipe it out clean. So when did it, when did it transfer? Well, I remember Mike McIntosh teaching me since I was there for about seven years. He, he taught me that it was the title deed to the planet Earth was handed over to Satan when Adam and Eve fell. And he became the one that ruled over this earth. Even he was the one that told Jesus, I can give any kingdom to whomever I want. And that was a temptation for Jesus. And Jesus declined the offer, you know, that temptation time that he went through with the three temptations. And Jesus used scripture to refute or to buttress back or to attack back what Satan was saying that he would give to him. And so Satan became the ruler of this world looks like at the fall. And again, God is going to destroy that. But the kingdom of God, it is in our midst. It is here now with us. In Luke chapter 17, in verse 20 and 21, I'm just going to pick it up here. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation." Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, it's within your midst. It is also within us. If Jesus is, in fact, quote-unquote, the kingdom of God, and Jesus is the same, in essence, as the Father, and the Father is the same, in essence, as the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, where's the kingdom of God? It's in us. Try to wrap your head around that way. What are you? Where? In my arm? In my chest? If I broke open my chest? What? No. It's God's ruling over our hearts. Our hearts get circumcised. And he transforms us from the inside out. It's not this outward observation that people can see and say, Oh, you're definitely a believer. What if somebody can act? Do you believe that there are those who can act as Christians? That they say all the right things, they have all the right words, but eventually they will be betrayed because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're with somebody long enough, you'll be able to tell. Are they a believer or are they not a believer? Just hang out with them. I think that's one of the reasons why, like a lot of men, I don't want to hang out too much with that guy. might reveal my heart. They're not saying that, but that happens. But if you're a believer, you have this fellowship with the saints, a fellowship with God, you share that in common, and it will just come out out of the abundance of the heart. If that's not what's coming out, like, to give you an example, when, before I was a believer, I loved some coarse jokes. I'd laugh. That's a good one. Oh, it's so bad, but it's so good. You know, I'd just laugh at it, yeah. But if you get a believer today, or if I was today, if I told you some really raucous jokes, 
I mean, what would you think? You'd think, I don't think that's very appropriate. And you would be right. It wouldn't be very appropriate. And no offense against sailors, but what if I cuss like a drunken sailor? What would you think about that? He would say, well, I don't think he's living it. You'd be right. I wouldn't be living it. And so all these things, you know, when people come to God, well, I have to give all this up, those funny jokes, and I have to give up cussing, and I have to change my lifestyle. It's not like that. It's not a set of rules. It's a relationship. God comes to us, and he goes, you think you should? And you go, yes. Okay. God just goes to the background, so to speak, and then you Get involved in whatever it is you get involved in. And if you're a believer, what comes upon you? Guilt weighs, oh, it's so wrong if you're a believer. But if you say, I'm not listening to that, and like a hot iron, you sear meat, you sear your conscience, then it's like, well, man, I don't have a problem. I can go to church and do whatever I want. That's where you get the sheep and the goats thing going on. We want to make sure that we are sensitive to God. If, if any one of us in here are at the point where we've seared our conscience so much, we can ask God to renew it. We can say, God, will you please just take my conscience, make, conscience, make it soft and supple, not hard and scarred. And he will do that. He will renew that within us. But it takes work on our part as well. And so the kingdom of God is here now. It is within us. And it's not in our action. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. You can tell if somebody is a citizen of the kingdom of God by their life, what they say and what they do. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be perfection. We're going to blow it. Probably daily or more than daily, we're going to blow it. And that's where we go to God and we say, God, forgive me, help me to do better. And so the kingdom of heaven, it comes in different stages. The first one, he rules in our hearts and collectively in the body of Christ. And we submit to the authority of the king and we have the kingdom parables. And we understand all of that. We have the sower of the seed. We have the wheat and the tares. We have the farmer who sows a mustard seed and it becomes the greatest of all the seeds. And it it talks about the birds that come and land in its branches. And those people are the ones who come into the church and they're actually part of Satan's horde. And they cause disruption, they cause disunity. But God sets up his kingdom first in our hearts, and we are submissive to that both individually and corporately. And secondly, he will rule over all those who truly believe after the millennial reign of Christ on earth. We will be submissive to him with no effort whatsoever because we will have the spirit of God living in us. He gives us a new spirit. We know exactly what we're supposed to do. Right now, it's our struggle to be submissive to that because we're living in this body of flesh. And the body of flesh wants to do what it wants to do. You don't think I'm right? Try staying up for two weeks. Don't go to sleep. You know what your body's going to do? I don't think so. And it's going to shut you down. It's kind of like that that sound of a power plant where they throw the big switches. And you're out. Your body's going to say, I'm going to rule over you. And you can say nothing about it. Try uh, not eating for a month. You know, I was listening to Moses and how Moses went up to see God and got the Ten Commandments. He was there for 40 days, right? He came back down 
He didn't eat or drink when he was up there. He came back down. He stayed before the Lord for 40 days. Didn't eat or drink anything. Then he went back up to the mountain. Another 40 days, I think it was. He didn't eat or drink anything. And I'm thinking, wait, wait. 120 days? He didn't have any? I I don't know. Did he? And, you know, I have to go back and look at it. But as I was listening to him, I'm going, whoa. If that's the case, he has life, not from this life, but he has life from the Spirit of God. And, of course, we know that when he showed up to the people, what was he looking like? He was looking like a spotlight. He would, you know... Cover your face. I can't even look at you. And they had put a veil over his face. But when he'd speak to the people, bzz, this light would just go out. Every, you're glowing. Oh, you have that glow. Is it a new lotion you're putting on? No, it was the Holy Spirit on the inside that was just radiating on the outside. And so that's what we have to look forward to. And the battle for us is the kingdom of God taking root in our lives and guiding and directing us. Now, verse 7, we're going to get there. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, hi, guys, how you doing? Oh, no, it doesn't say that. He said, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's not trying to win friends or influence enemies by that statement. You bunch of snakes. And now, looking at John the Baptist, remember... He's probably in the water. He's baptizing. He could be on land. I don't know. He's wearing this camel hair outfit. He has this belt of leather on. His hair is who knows how long because it's never been cut. He's over 30 years old, 33, something like that. He's older than Jesus. He's a wild man. And these people, the religious leaders show up. They probably have some nice clothes on. You brood of vipers! And he's just right at them. And can you imagine the people? Ooh, there's a fight going on. Let's listen. You know, and this is going, there's a lot of people there. And so they're, they're going back and forth. And he points them out in the midst of the crowd. So why are they a brood of vipers? Why doesn't he just say, come on down, you can repent too, and we'll get this baptism going on for you. And he doesn't do any of that. He just simply condemns them from the get-go. Well, why did he condemn them? Now, we have the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the Fadducees and the Pharisees, whichever way you want to say it. And, and so we have these two groups that are there, and the Pharisees were like the ones who understood the law. They weren't the, the lawyers, but they, were, they understood every practice that was supposed to take place. Paul was a Pharisee, and the Sadducees were the high priests, the family of the high priests. Now, what about them? They were self-righteous, they loved attention, they loved being honored by others. They wanted others to think that they were spiritual. And by the way, I have scriptures for all of these. They placed heavy requirements on others that they were not willing to submit to. They did good works as a show for others. They were hypocrites. And in other words, they would teach but not adhere to their own teaching. They were self-indulgent. They were greedy for money. They were self-absorbed leaders of the people. In other words... They had this outward piety. That outward piety is still there with these Jews. To, to give you an example of that, if you <clears throat> are up in the college area, I know that there is a synagogue up there. And if you go up there on a Friday, going into a Saturday, you will see them walking to the synagogue. And they will have a yamulka. On top of their head, that's the little round thing that's up there. 
By the way, the Pope has one. Did you know that? The Pope wears one too. It's white. It's on top of his head. Well, they, all the Jews, when they're going to synagogue, they wear one. And sometimes if they're real Orthodox, they wear it all the time. It's not just a part-time thing. They also have these tassels. And in Scripture, it talks about these tassels. And these, these tassels are called, actually, you have this prayer shawl. One of them is a prayer shawl. And it's called a talit or a talis. It depends on which era you come from. And then there are these tassels that hang off of that prayer shawl. It's like over the shoulders. And these tassels that hang off of that are called a tzitzit is what, it, what they're called. But also, their garments, like they'll, they'll have this thing that looks like a pillowcase. And it has a hole in it with a slit. And they put it over their heads. And on the four corners, that, and that would be right in the center, and on the four corners as it hangs down would be these tassels that hang down. And they put that underneath their shirt. And if you go over to Israel, all the Jews are wearing them. They have these tassels hanging around. And Jesus probably had these tassels. Remember the woman who had the issue of the flow of blood? She reached out to touch Jesus' robe. She probably touched the tassels that were hanging off of his robe. That's how she got healed. And he said, virtue went out for me. And who touched me? And everybody said, well, what do you mean who touched you? There's hundreds of people around here. Well, she probably touched the tassels that hanged off of his garment that was there. And so they wear those as a way to follow Scripture, which it says the Jews are not supposed to do that. Or they're supposed to do that. They're supposed to follow Scripture and keep these tassels. Also, it says you're not to round the corner of your beard or your hair. Now, if you look at somebody's head, you go, so where's the corner? Are you a blockhead? I mean, what, what is on there exactly? It, it would have been the sideburn side. And the reason God told them do not round the corners of your head is because there were pagan individuals that would shave like a bowl around their head. And they did it in honor of their God. And that's what the way that they would wear their hair. And God told them, don't do that. Or the beard, cutting the corners of the beard or the corners. If you look at a, a Hasidic Jew, a real devout Jew, the beard's just ZZ Top. I mean, that thing is just hanging down, just going back and forth. They let that thing grow. And for men back then, the beard was it. If you didn't have a beard, uh, not enough testosterone, not the blessing of God, whatever the case was, it wasn't good. And so everybody had a beard. And they would wear that beard long. And Jesus had a long beard. And so you weren't supposed to cut the corner of your head. You were supposed to wear this beard. You're supposed to have the tassels. Have you ever been to somebody who has a Jewish home? They have a mezuzah up on the doorpost that's there. There's a mezuzah. And the mezuzah, the Lord our God is one. Uh, the Lord is one Lord. Um, I forget how it goes now. I'm in the midst of it. I didn't write it down. But they'll walk up and they'll touch it. And on the inside are specific scriptures. And there's actually 23 lines 170 words and 713 letters that are inside a mezuzah. And you will see the first letter of the name of God on that mezuzah that's up there. If you go to Israel, they're on all the houses. They're usually on all the doors when you go into a hotel. And so as a way to honor God, they do not cut their hair. They do not 
cut their beard or they'll let these curls grow down, really long curls. Even though God meant it so you wouldn't like the, look like the pagans, they say, well, no, literally, we got to take this literally. We got to wear this thing going on here. And so they would have all of these practices that they would follow through. And then the, the yamulka, it means God is constantly over me. And so I'm going to wear this and cover my head, even though you would go to First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, it says a man's not to cover his head. And, and then some people who are Christians will say, well, see, that's why the curse of God is on him, because I cover that. That's just nonsense. And if you hear that stuff, just kind of throw it away. But they're trying to honor God outwardly. What's the problem? They haven't done it inwardly. So they do all these things on the outside. You go to Israel, man, they are devout. You look at them, they got the curls. Another thing that they wear is phylacteries. You go, oh, phylacter, what? A phylactery. They have this box. It's a box. They stick it on their forehead and they wrap it around their head and it has the word of God in it because scripture says, write it on your forehead. So they put it in the box and they stick it up on their forehead and on your hand. Well, they have this method. They take this strap and the strap goes around one finger, around two fingers, around the wrist. And then you have uh, four wraps right here, a separation, three wraps right here. It goes around to the front of the bicep and another box is there. So you have a box here, you have a box there, you have your Yamakan, you have a prayer shawl, you have your tassels, you have your mezuzah at home. I worship God. And let's just go wreak havoc the rest of the time. You look at that and you go, they don't honor God with their hearts. That's why God said, I don't desire sacrifice. I desire obedience. He didn't care what they did on the outside. That wasn't important to him. God wanted the inside. He wanted the heart. He wanted to make sure that they were giving themselves over to God. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus delivers a warning. He says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces to have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Matthew 23 says, they tie up in verse 4. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. The longer the tassel, the more spiritual. The bigger the box, oh, the more you're following God. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have all men call them rabbi, but you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. So you see how the teaching of Jesus was completely contrary to the attitude of the teachers of the law. The Pharisees. God wants to make sure that we don't have that same problem. That we show up to church. We read our Bibles occasionally. We might even go to a study and we might give. And by the way, as I go down this road, I want you to keep in mind one scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. But, you know, as I'm reading this, I am go, oh God, is there anything in me where I'm just, I'm doing something for show? 
or I'm doing something because that's just the way you're supposed to do it and my heart is rotten. Uh, King David said, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And as I said in the beginning, he's faithful to show that. And, and so this idea of outward signs, do we all possess the outward signs that we are Christians? We go to church, we read, we give, we serve, all of that. We have the outward signs that we're actually a disciple. Now, see, that's taking it another bump up, another step up. <clears throat> the Lord knows where we are individually. The book of Psalms says, in Psalm 20, verse 27, the lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of man. It searches out his inmost being. In other words, everything you're thinking as a subset of what everybody else is seeing, God knows that thought. And he knows it intimately. And he knows our motivation for our thoughts. And when we see God, guess what he's going to tell us? I know what you were thinking. This is it. You know, and all of a sudden, oh, no, I'm being exposed. Guess what? We're all going to be exposed. And what will that bring? Humility, the fruit of repentance, and then the peace which passes understanding because God's going to forgive all of us for all of those things that we have had. But here on earth, the way that we act, as I just said, we go to church, we read, we listen to the word, but our heart is not in it. How do you know if your heart's not in it? Let me explain it this way. God will, for all of us, open doors. We can choose to walk through them, or we can choose not to. Every opportunity that God presents to us, if somebody comes to you with an opportunity, ministry, or missions, or whatever it might be, serving donuts, or, you know jackhammering up some concrete, whatever it is, if you have the ability, say yes. If you say yes, it is a wild ride. I mean, you get it's, this is better than anything at Magic Mountain. I mean, you, the Lord will take you places and have you do things that you never thought possible. And what will it cause you? Anxiety and fear and trepidation and what's going on. And God says, just trust me, it's going to be okay. It's going to be just fine. But the person who is not doing that, when an opportunity is presented, they will say, no. And they'll give you a reason why. And the reason why usually begins with I. And somebody has an eye disease when that happens. I, yeah, I just don't feel called. Uh, yeah, I, I, I got something to do. I, yeah, I, I, I have to paint my house. I have to cut the lawn. I have to trim my fingernails. I, I, I. You know what they call that? Eye disease. It's eye disease. That's what it is. We don't want to have an eye disease. If somebody says, well, the Lord. Oh, okay, I'm listening now. The Lord said what? The Lord said, no, he, he wants me over here. Because you've asked the Lord. If you, if you are presented with door say lord bless it if i walk through it if i don't just shut it in front of me but walk through it and if we don't walk through it i mean our life is just so dull in comparison and god wants us to have life and have it more abundantly and walk out there in the newness of life and experience every single day like wow this is this is kind of good because god's taking you to new places but it will also cause you to be broken It will also cause you to suffer humility. It will also cause you to give of yourself and to die. And who wants to sign up for that? 
Nobody wants to sign up for that. That's why Paul says, I buffet my body daily. And this is the walk of the believer. So the believer that says, you know, it's all good. I go to church, I read, I tithe, I serve, but my heart is desperately wicked. Yeah, try saying yes to everything that he has for you. Whether it's a Bible study, whether it's a retreat, whether it's a fellowship, a breakfast, a women's tea, whatever it might be, say yes. And if you do that, it's going to be good. Now, one final comment as I close here. For somebody who says, stop it, I don't want to hear this. I'm only giving you God's word. If you want to crucify the pastor, go ahead. You know, (laughs) welcome to ministry. But it's this idea that this is what the Lord wants for us. I'm just telling you what the Lord wants of all of you. If you are able and a door opens, take it. Don't do it for show. Don't do it because others might see what you're doing and and then turn to you and say, oh, you're so wonderful, you're so spiritual. Receive a compliment, give it to God at the end of the day and say, God, it's all because of you. And you can walk in humility the proper way. And you will be transformed by the time you enter into heaven. By the time this life is over, the transition will be easy. It won't even be a couple of steps. It'll just be walking through the door because you've learned to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the insight it delivers. We'd ask, Lord, that you would help us to be conformed to your word in the innermost being, that we would not be concerned with what others think, but only concerned with doing your will in all things. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be faithful. Help us to give ourselves fully to you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen.